0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you, but i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 44th podcast in our series on the second half of American history. In the 43rd podcast, a relatively short episode, I focused solely on the what could have been brutally tragic event known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Again, I covered not only the events in terms of the options that were available to President Kennedy, but I also ended it more or less by explaining what some Americans may not like to hear, and maybe it wasn't the way they were taught, that it was Kennedy that won the uh, mus- the missile crisis, not Khrushchev. But of course, that history is written by and large by American authors in the way that those American authors were once taught themselves. That said, myself having st- studied Soviet foreign policy, not through the American perspective, clearly portrayed Khrushchev as the winner. But both countries were severely weakened in the sense that we went toe to toe, nuclear superpowers, went toe-to-toe with what seemed to be their fingers on the launch pad buttons. That was what would lead us then to this next episode in the series in the second half of American history, sadly, the Kennedy assassination. Please know, as I, I will preface the Kennedy assassination with this, The Kennedy assassination is one that I've studied extensively and I've given public speeches on in the United States. I have traveled myself to Dallas. I walked part of that motorcade route that that has been since the event under intense study and scrutiny even decades later. I made my way into the building that Lee Harvey Oswald shot the president from. I went up to that floor as well, and it is now a museum that focuses on that tragic event. Please note that there is still a significant portion of the American population that believes that the American people were not told all that there was to know about the Kennedy assassination, specifically that Oswald was not a lone shooter, or if he was, he was not doing this on his own. So I'm going to put out there right now my position on this and is as objective as I try to be. Please know that I am myself convinced that Oswald acted alone. For the conspiracy theorists, I know I just disappointed you, but there's enough other Instances with our American government, both in the present and in the past, that does make me scratch my head wondering, did we learn everything we were supposed to here? Was any information being withheld? But when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, no. I believe Oswald was the lone shooter. That said, again, I know that I'm not necessarily in the minority, but I'm not in the majority either of the population that would agree or disagree with me. The reason being, is that of all of the conspiracy theories throughout American history, every conspiracy theory, with the sole exception of the Kennedy assassination, has no more than 9% of Americans believing in the conspiracy theory. In other words, roughly 7 to 9% of Americans believe something negative has gone on and or is still going on in quote-unquote Area fifty-one: A single, the single-digit percentile of Americans believe that the assassin of Le, uh, Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth, actually was never caught, and he died of natural causes in South Carolina. These conspiracy theories again abound, but again, no more than single-digit percentile of Americans actually believe in the conspiracy theory about those and other events. Again, the sole exception is the Kennedy assassination, with the reason being that roughly 50% of Americans, one out of two, believe that Oswald did not act alone. Now, I'm not here to try again to make those that believe Oswald acted alone look good or look better than those who believe that Oswald was part of a larger conspiracy. In fact, there is a reason to believe, good reasons to believe, that Oswald did not act alone, because there are some things that are still unexplainable. Two of the most important is the following, that the rifle that John F. Kennedy was shot by, that Lee Harvey Oswald used, was that 1940 Italian Sarcano rifle had a loading pattern that took roughly just under three seconds. But of the various audio recordings that were obtained, and there was almost a dozen, not including as well as the visual recordings, it does appear that shots were fired in less than the amount of time that Oswald would have needed to have reloaded the weapon. Yes, it is still unexplainable. Again, as I say, having been there myself, the speeches that I've given on this, I've been on television with uh, here in the Cleveland area with Anchor Rick Jackson on Idea Stream. when I discussed the Kennedy assassination on the 50th anniversary, back of course in 2013, where I was joined by Congressman Lou Stokes, as well as Kennedy family friend, Tim Hagan. Please note that before the episode recording even started, the three of us gentlemen revealed where we stood on whether we believed there was a conspiracy theory or not. Again, I believe that Oswald acted alone. I had learned at that time, I'm not speaking for him since, but family friend Tim Hagan also believed Oswald acted alone. Congressman Lou Stokes, however, did not. To the point that President Jimmy Carter asked Congressman Lou Stokes to reinvestigate the assassination more than a decade after the event. So as I say, just to put that out there where I stand, my background on this, again, I have read it, studied it uh, extensively. So let's begin then with that event in Dallas by looking at the history of the presidents all the way up to number 35, John F. Kennedy, as I as I ended the last podcast episode would the Kennedy assassination be the continuation of what we call the zero-year curse or the 20-year presidential curse. There is a third label to that, but I do believe that that label is denigrating to Native Americans, and that's why I don't want to refer to it by that. So let's just leave it with the zero-year curse or the 20-year curse, but it that uh, curse is explained as follows, that, Since the election of 18, presidential election of 1840, no American president elected in a zero year left office alive. Put another way, 1820 was the last year that an American president was elected and was able to live to the end of his term. That, of course, being our fifth president, James Monroe elected for a second term in 1820, walked out of office. He was alive at the end of his term. Starting in 1840, sadly, as we know, continuing through 1960, no president elected in a zero year walked out of office. They died in office. Quickly, 1840, America still to date, shortest term president that we have had, that being William Henry Harrison, died of natural causes, we believe a combination of pneumonia and other uh, breathing issues that he had, died roughly 30 days after taking office. In fact, it was 30 days from March 4th of 1841 to April 4th of 1841. 1860, Illinois Congressman Abraham Lincoln is elected to the presidency. Yes, he makes it to the end of that full term and is re-elected. The first president re-elected since number seven, Andrew Jackson, but Abraham Lincoln, number 16, is re-elected in 1864 and, as we know, killed a month after taking the oath of office for the second term. Yes, as I say, he finished his term, but he was elected in 1860, but he did not walk out of office alive. 1880, the election of our 20th president, James Garfield, felled by an assassin's bullet several months after taking off, taking the oath of office as well. 1900, we get to president uh, number 25, William McKinley, killed in New York City, or excuse me, in Buffalo, in the state of New York, killed in Buffalo, New York. And then from there, we get to 1940, where President Franklin Roosevelt, our 32nd president, will be elected for his unprecedented third term, yet will not walk out of office alive either because after, shortly after taking the oath of office for his fourth term, he dies in April of 1945. Now we get to 1960, President John F. Kennedy elected in a zero year. Also, as we know, will not make it out of office alive. Just to quickly give a, a sneak preview of coming events, yes, we know that the curse will be broken as of the Kennedy, or after the Kennedy assassination, because in 1980, Ronald Reagan, despite an assassination attempt that lodged part of a Devastator bullet just three millimeters from his heart, will walk out of office alive in 1989. George W. Bush elected in 2000, To date, we know of no significant threat to his life during his two terms in office, including 9-11. Living through that, he walks out of office alive in January of 2009. And to date, in the still first term of the Biden administration, Joe Biden, a man that had been running for president since 1988, was elected in 2020 and god willing is able to walk out of office alive whether it's after his first term and he loses his bid for re-election or is re-elected and is able to complete his second term so back here to 1963 kennedy uh john f kennedy has landed in dallas and he is there kind of at a is a rudimentary campaign stop the presidential campaign is not going to be as we know for another year But it is no secret that the vice president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, as I'll refer to him most of the time, and Kennedy had an absolute acrimonious relationship. Essentially, the two men, and by extension their families, couldn't stand one another. There was so little in common between both men all the way down to their personality and their background, with Kennedy being brought up in Massachusetts in the East Coast and Lyndon Johnson being a native of Texas. There was some thought that Johnson might actually jump off the ticket, potentially even launch his own bid in 1964, to steal the nomination away from a second-term bid by John F. Kennedy himself. If he did that, there could be a significant chance that Johnson would carry his home state of Texas. Kennedy wanted to travel to Texas to see what the reaction was of the population, and if it was strong, more or less trying to give an unveiled threat to Johnson that go ahead and jump off the ticket, but the people of Texas love me, and I have them secure, hopefully, when I run for reelection in 1964. Now, there were other events, of course, scheduled for that day or for that trip, as we know, would never come to fruition. So as the motorcade was traveling and essentially in more or less kind of like a parade route, as it was heading in and around as through the late morning, early afternoon, was snaking around downtown Dallas. And the motorcade had a route in which there was a dog leg turn. And of course, for those not familiar with that, it means that at one point, the presidential limousine will make a left hand turn. And it won't be just a 90 degree turn. It will be more than that, as the with the turn was stronger or steeper than 90 degrees and would have the presidential motorcade almost in essence backtracking towards the street in which it originally turned from. That would give a potential assassin the absolute perfect opportunity to try to aim for the president if not coming towards the building having a second chance to aim at the president when he would be turning away from the building. Since this assassination, to our knowledge, or to my knowledge, dog-leg turns would never be part of a presidential motorcade route going forward. Now, one might ask, and it begs the question, how would this would-be assassin, who will be the assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, how could he have known that Kennedy was in town, much less the actual motorcade route. Simply put, it was advertised in the local papers. Now, on the surface, some listeners may be horrified, thinking, oh, my gosh, talk about giving would-be assassins the literally time and place where a president will be. Admittedly, and I'm not here to dispute that, but remember that the president is a politician. If he's in his first term, then he is going to be most likely looking to be to be reelected because of that presidential advisors and especially the advisors for reelecting the president want to see as much publicity as possible and that's the reason that information was put in the newspapers ahead of time and in some cases even talked about on local television channels ironically enough even after the assassination presidential plans and where their whereabouts will continue to be published in public newspapers all the way up through to March 1981. It was only after the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan's life by John Hinckley, it is only after that, that the president's plans will be talked about in in, uh, local papers, but the details of exactly where and when would be withheld in most cases, so again, as it may be surprised that we'll learn a lot from and about the Kennedy assassination, but some things which may seem obvious, again on the outside looking in, won't change. So it would be there that Kennedy was traveling in the back of the presidential limousine, and as he is driving or, excuse me, driving as he is in the very back of the limousine, the middle. Row was occupied by Texas Governor John Connolly, who was directly in front of the president, and next to him, his wife, and from there in front of them would be the two Secret Service agents, John Greer and Roy Kellerman. As the motorcade was heading towards the infamous building of the Texas Bookstore Depository, or repository, that the motorcade slowed, took that dog leg steep left turn and continued down that route when Oswald saw his opportunity and took his three shots. At that event, as right at that moment, It is reported that oswald then ran from and that window went down through the staircases to the lower level off out of this off of the sixth floor and then ran to a movie theater which was the exact opposite path that wilkes john wilkes booth used when he assassinated lincoln it is there however at that window that later on pictures would be taken from the exact place where oswald stood and this again does support those that believe that there is a conspiracy around this because again as i've stated earlier i was at the 6th floor museum as they are it is as it is referred to i've walked every floor every inch as that is available to the public on that floor but you cannot you cannot stand where oswald stood and you cannot look out of the window for reasons that i attempted to ask and when i did i asked two people what looked like basically an hourly worker at the museum and then a general manager when i asked excuse me i'm a history professor from illinois i was living in illinois at the time and I have a question about the window where Oswald shot from, because I noticed, sir, that there is a massive chain link fence all around that window with the gate that had, as I counted, three padlocks, keeping the gate to that area closed and the window was painted shut. So I just have a quick question. And with that, the manager never turns to look at me as though Obviously, once you hear his answer, let's just say he got this question more than a couple of times, because he rattled off in a kind of a loud, irritated voice, no, I don't have the keys to the padlock, I don't know who has keys to the padlock, no, I have never been inside the fenced-in area, and no, I don't know why it's cut off from the public, and he proceeded to go on his way. Since then... That's part of the sixth floor museum has been remodeled and that relatively, if you forgive the words, ugly steel chain link fence has been removed, but in its place, a glass cube has been put in its place and the window is still painted shut. So again, for those that believe in the conspiracy theory, if you didn't know that before, I probably just helped you dig in your heels. I get that, Um, but that still doesn't change my understanding of the facts and why I still believe that Oswald acted alone. However, a reporter was able to get up to the sixth floor, right to the window where Oswald shot from, saw the shells on the windowsill and on the floor and took several pictures and then leaned towards the open window and also took a picture those pictures were then given or sold to life magazine who ran a special commemoration edition dated the latter part of those last days of november 1963. director of the fbi j edgar hoover demanded that those magazine issues be recalled and destroyed for reasons that were never made clear. My suspicion is it was because of those pictures that were taken by the photographer, which have never been in print to my knowledge anywhere else, as well as larger still frames of the infamous Zapruder film that shows Clint Hill the Secret Service agent running behind the presidential limousine, trying to get onto the trunk of the car. Because of that recall also fueled people's suspicion. I myself have an original of that magazine that was my grandmother received in the mail, and it shows at the bottom of that magazine her name and then her address. You can see that magazine if you type in something to the effect in a search engine, Kinsella, John F. Kennedy assassination 2013 interview. That's not the one with Rick Jackson. Rather, is when I was interviewed by another news uh, channel on the morning of the 50th anniversary where they wanted to have to view that edition of the magazine, which again is in clear view for people to see. So Oswald ran. As we know, he was apprehended quickly after that. He was then brought into uh, into the jail where he was assassinated. He himself was killed two days later by Jack Ruby. Again, information that sadly just fuels the people that are believing in the conspiracy theory. The fact of the matter is Clint Hill and excuse me, not Clint Hill, but Roy Kellerman and John Greer, the two Secret Service agents in the front of the limousine, in the front seat. They were, as, as readily admitted, not in the best frame of mind that morning. They had pretty bad headaches and they weren't feeling too good overall. The reason being is that the night before the assassination, they decided to leave the hotel and walk down to a local bar where they had just one beer or one alcoholic drink each and then stopped at that point because, of course, they had the presidential detail the next day. But a gentleman at the end of the bar worked his way over, asked what the men did for a living, said, wow, it was something to the effect of you two men look very important, and they told the man what they did who said, my gosh, you drive around, our president. Well, by all means, let me buy you a drink. And the man bought both of them a drink. And then Roy and John were given another drink and another drink. And then the man left. Both Kellerman and Greer did not know who the man was when they were told, when they told about it later that infamous Friday afternoon. They didn't know who he was at all on Saturday. But when the pictures came out late on Sunday into Monday of Jack Ruby shooting Oswald in the gut, both men exclaimed, that was the man that was buying us the drinks. You see, once again, it just, it just adds more question marks than anything else to, unfortunately, the event itself. So that said... That was the event. And as I say, that's what would unfortunately end the career of our 35th president of the United States. Now, Clearly, I could go on and on as my presentations and public speeches on this. I can make it as short as a half hour. I can make it several hours long, and I don't want to belabor it here. But please know there are very few events in American history, much less about the presidency, that actually have created their own fact book slash dictionary about the one soul event itself. And that is the, the book called, none other, The Assassination of John F. Kennedy, Dates, Places, People, by James P. Duffy and Vincent L. Ricci. Again, that's how much people have been seeking to learn more and more that there would be demand for a book like that. But the assassination, again, was from lee from lee harvey's oswald's perspective alone successful kennedy of course was dead i'm not going to get into the trajectory of bullets and, and when the shots that actually came in as i say it could just make for a very long series, uh, a couple of podcasts but i will say though that it was later revealed that despite what jackie kennedy had said that she was crawling onto the trunk of the lincoln continental convertible limousine to assist clint hill who was running towards the back of the limousine that she was attempting to help him on that's what she was to testify later on please note again folks none of that made sense this poor woman just is witnessed her husband having bullets enter his body. The fact of the matter is the last person that she was concerned about was an agent running behind the limousine, which also begs the question, how could she have had the time to crawl onto the trunk of the limousine? How could Clint Hill have caught up with a limousine that supposedly would have been Maxed out at speed in order to get away from the area, but the various audio and visual and personal witnesses that testified indicated that the presidential limousine not only did not increase from the very low speed that it was going roughly four to five miles an hour, that it actually slowed down slightly for less than a minute before it gunned away. That's the reason why Jackie Kennedy had the ability to crawl onto the roof, to the trunk of the car, and later on, as the Zapruder shots showed, she was not extending her hand to Clint Hill. She was trying to get the top of her husband's head. One might think, well, what good would that do? But you cannot, put, you cannot judge somebody who's in that situation in the middle of turmoil and horror as those events were unfolding. But that is again what I can share here in a thirty-minute episode of the Kennedy assassination. I'm always happy, of course, to take any questions. Uh, if anybody wishes to discuss this, feel free to email me on my or through my website, and I'm happy to uh, field those questions from there. But as we move forward now, when we return for our next episode in our series of podcasts in the second half of American history, we're going to see the inauguration of the next pro- the. Uh, oath of office taken by the next president of the United States by a person who had never given a president the oath of office before in terms of gender and was the only president to do so to date on an airplane. And that's what we'll continue with next in our second half of American History. So thank you again for listening. If you have any questions, again, feel free to go to my website and please leave me a review as well if you liked what you heard. Have a great day.